Before we begin this episode, I would like to acknowledge that it was spoken and recorded on the ancestral lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to pay my respects to any elders past, present or emerging who may be listening and to point out that we are continuing an oral storytelling tradition that is thousands of generations old in this country and that sovereignty was never ceded. Well, I often, you know, I run all these workshops mm. and I tell, partly, you know why, because I have, my book collection is so giant that I really need people to help me get through it. <laughs> so part of it, I feel like this is a task for many hands mm. where we are stabbing all these books that contain really intensely imperialist, mm. racist, misogynist um, propaganda and we are dismantling it and from its ruins, creating a world that we can bear to live in. Welcome to A World of One's Own, a podcast where I speak with a series of artists I respect and admire. This time round, it's a special edition of five new episodes commissioned by the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery, featuring artists I've selected from their collection. I'm Ty Snaith, and today, I'm speaking with Deborah Kelly about her animated paperwork, Lying Women. We talk about what responsibility we have as artists in the world and how we can learn to use our megaphones to try to create a better place. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Deborah Kelly to my house. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you very much. And it is actually super lucky that I've got you in Melbourne because you are based in Sydney. I think you're the only one I'm speaking to from Sydney. And your work in the collection at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is unusual because it is one of the few works that isn't actually a paperwork, it's a video of a paperwork. Am I right? Yes. I mean, it's a paperwork, though. It's about paper and it is made of paper. It is a video, um, but it is at the same time very concentrated on the particular qualities of paper and their um, historical and metaphorical freight. Mm. And can you tell me uh, the title of the work and maybe a little bit about it? Just so. Yes, I can. Um, the work is called Lying Women and that is in capital letters. You have to imagine it's um, Donald Trump shouting those words. Yeah, I love that. And it is um, made of hundreds of discarded uh, history books of the history of white men's art. So I went, I collected hundreds of these books, many of them just lying on the side of the road. But you know when you're doing a really good art project and you turn into a magnet? Yes. And everything that you see and do magically um, pertains to the work that you're doing. That's just being an opportunist, I think. Oh, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I feel like you turn into a kind of... Um, conduit or something. Conduit. Mm. Like you're um, vibrating on a certain kind of frequency <gasps> or something. I love that. And the things that you need for the work or that will teach you something about the work, they kind of Find come you. to you. Find you. Kind of. I mean, while I was working on that project and looking for those books, seriously, 
things happened like I was walking down a street near where I live in Sydney and a woman walked out of the house with one of my favourite books of white men's art history and that had all these reclining nudes in it. Um, And I just looked at her with surprise because it was the exact book I was looking for. And she said, I'd never seen it before in my life. She said, do you want this? What? <laughs> and of course, I just burst out laughing. So yes, I do. That's amazing. Really want that. Yeah. So you collected them sort of over what period of time? I guess I had been. You know how you collect things, thinking that one day they're going to come in handy. I do know that. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I had been kind of vaguely collecting them for probably twenty years, but then when I started really collecting them. And really attending to that, um, I guess that was only two or three years. But so I ended up with hundreds, of course. Um, And I cut out all of the most frequently represented reclining nudes. And what of art history. What are they? Which paintings are they? The oh most common. Oh my God, you want me to remember just, them all? I know okay. what it looks like, but I don't know the title of the painting. Okay, Manet's Olympia. Oh yeah, of course. Um, uh, three of the most frequent ones are by Raphael. Really? Yeah, there's um, Venus asleep. Of course. There's Is the th- Venus of Urbino. There's the Venus <laughs> of the, no, she's not Venus. Who is she? Um, she's the one that Zeus seduces with money. Oh. She's opening her thighs to allow the money, money to come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and there's Giorgione's, the first one is Giorgione's um, Sleeping Venus, who's, you know, just lying in Classic. the park asleep. Is that the side, the what's <laughs> the side lying one that we see the back? Um, the that, famous there's one. two of them, um, but one, the really famous one is the Rockaby Venus by Velasquez. Mm-hmm. And that really features in the work quite a lot. That's what I'm because of. she's in every book, mm-hmm. but also because that is the work that was slashed by the demented suffragette Mary Richardson in 1914, the back was slashed open as an act of protest against women not being allowed to vote. (gasps) I never knew that. Yeah, and that's why in the film you see um, all of the hands stroke her back. Oh, like healing. Kind of. (gasps) Kind of thanking her in a way. Um, But for the very mixed blessing of the vote. You know, because yes. we didn't get to no. overturn the patriarchy that way. No. Turns out. Turns out. <laughs> yeah. And Mary Richardson was demented um, and ended up being the head of Walter Mosley's British Fascist Union's Women's Auxiliary. Oh, Only 20 years later. Ouch. So, yeah, mm. ouch. Mm. So that's partly also why we're stroking the back of that It's almost character. Ap- apologising or... Yeah. yeah. And they're your hands? Uh, they're my hands and um, two other artist friends, Annie Boone Prasuth and um, Yvonne East and my friend Estiwa. Yeah, so we just did a stop-motion animation and tried to free those characters from their, their long service to heterocolonial patriarchy. And art history. And art history. Um, and to, I don't know, to allow them to rub up against each other <laughs> and to form a revolution, to escape. To escape. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I have to say it's such an awesome work. Like it's one of my favourite. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, definitely of your work it's my favourite, but I think... Uh, I, mean, I just it, think that's because you haven't seen enough of my work. Maybe that's why. <laughs> I feel like I've seen a bit, but I do love that work a lot. And I, one, I think the first time I saw it, I remember thinking about just all the different representations of one image that exists in real life, like a painting, you know, beyond the other layers of feminism. But the way that we have in Australia mainly viewed these images through books and they can vary so wildly. Wildly. Um, and that is also, that's why the work is kind of about paper and mm. its qualities, mm. um, but which isn't just a physical thing. It is to do with being an Antipodean student of art mm. who never gets to see the paintings. The print qualities are wildly various, mm. which I really love. And, for instance, one of the most frequently represented um, reclining nudes in white men's art history is Gauguin's, um, the various young women that he was um, sleeping with, he was bloody doing. <laughs> um, and in some of the books, they are green, those women. Yes. Oh, because the colour has faded over time? Or just the printing shit to begin with. Because wow. a lot of the books are not rich people's books. Mm. They are compendia mm-hmm. of popular art history. You know, there's not a single woman to be seen except wow. for that mood. Yes. There are no there are no women artists at all. Quite shocking, isn't it? It is really shocking. Mm. That somebody learned from these for so many years. And yeah. I was one of them. Mm. So that it was really important to me because that is how I learned art. Mm. I had no idea women could be artists. I had no idea Australians could be artists. Yeah, and in terms of your identity as a woman and an Australian woman and an artist, I mean, how did that form your identity? Was it an act of rebellion then? Yeah, I guess it was. Hmm. I studied law. Wow. I don't know if you know that, um, but no. I didn't want to. It's just that I got in, so I kind of had to. I'm the first person in my family who ever finished school, so it was a really big deal that I got into law. Mm. But I just um, really, really wished to be an artist. And now you are. And now I actually been. am. And since I lost my job a couple of years ago, it's more or less all I am. So. Well, I would disagree that that's all you are because I feel like I equally hear about you and your activism as much as your art or do you sort of put them in the same category? I'm interested to talk about where they overlap. and Yeah, no, I don't see them at, a, at all separate really. Mm. And so the act of cutting I'd like to talk about because I know I've talked about this before with a few artists but the act of cutting in itself and particularly cutting a book is is a rebellious act. Yeah. But then the act of creating something new with that. It's not just rebellious, it's sacrilegious. I mean, it really makes me think of obviously early Dada artists like Hannah Hock or those women that in some ways were doing a similar thing, like freeing the bodies from what we expect of them and creating a new um, story for them. Yes. (laughs) But at the same time, so some of my books I get them because they're so full of things that I want to cut out. Mm -hmm. But then I get them home and go, in fact, sometimes I have pulled my knife out and it won't touch the paper. Really? Yeah, so the knife refuses. So now I've got this stupid number of books that I can't cut 
And what is that? They're too precious or? Too precious mm. or I realise that they themselves are a historical document that only makes sense whole. Hmm. I mean, I love cutting up books too. And I actually have a lot of friends who love cutting up books. It must be, you know, something in common. But I also like making books. So I think that there's a, I always feel like there's an act of destruction, but, you know, by making a new artwork from it, there's an act of creation that almost balances it out. Well, I often, you know, I run all these workshops Hmm. and I tell, Partly, you know why, because I've my book collection is so giant that I really need people to help me get through it. So <laughs> part of it I feel like this is a task for many hands huh. where we are um, stabbing all these books that contain really intensely imperialist, hmm. racist, misogynist um, propaganda and we are dismantling it and from its ruins creating a world that we can bear to live in. That's so amazing and beautiful. I love that you've thought that through. And do you tell people in your workshop that? Yeah. that's. I say that's the task. That's why we're here. And it really makes people go, ooh. (laughs) And (laughs) and I do think that that's, I mean, that is where your activism clearly bleeds into your practice. But then I think that there are more overt ways. I mean, there's a spectrum, isn't there? There's, do you think there's ever times where you're working? I know you've had so many um, involvement over the years in different activist causes. And um, do, you, do you always involve your creative practice in that, though? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, do you mean do I also, like, just go to meetings and take yeah. notes? Yeah, just be the treasurer or something. No, I'm so bad at that. (laughs) I did used to try, but I'm just terrible at it. Yeah. Um, So I had to end up thinking I I only really have one skill. Yeah. And that's all I have to offer. So. And what do you think that is that you have to offer? (gasps) Tricky questions. Good, important questions. So partly I think what I have to offer is a way or a lot of ways to think about what we're doing um, and to locate our enemies Mm -hmm. um, and to envisage other ways and other worlds. So as an artist, that envisaging, I I really 100% agree, is the skill that we can do that not everyone else can do. But can we, is part of that activism teaching other people that or just doing it? Oh, no, I teach Mm -hmm. all the time. I'm not a proper teacher, but I do run workshops. But I worked in publishing for 30 years. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's how I came to contemporary art. I probably should tell you that. Yeah, totally. So I was a cartoonist for a long time. Really? I didn't. Yeah, I published hundreds of cartoons in the 80s. I got this job um, as the cartoonist for the Fitzroy Voice when I was 20 or 21. And we had a Commonwealth employment project, which was like work for the doll, Mm -hmm. except for good. (laughs) Like it was properly set up and it was these kind of training jobs. We got to do a really interesting job. My job was being the cartoonist for the Fitzroy Voice. Amazing. Yeah. That's like some other reality, isn't it? Well, it it was not exactly work for the doll. It was an earlier thing called the Commonwealth employment project where you got a very small wage, Mm. but for doing a proper project that like a local community could Mm. say, we want, we've got this newsletter, we want to make it into a proper newspaper and we want all these people to work on it. So they got all these positions funded. But the 
graphic designer who was supposed to be making the newspaper for my cartoons to go in Mm. didn't turn up. (laughs) So I had to end up learning how to design the newspaper to contain my cartoons. (laughs) And computers hadn't even been invented. So it was really hard to learn. And then I became a bromide camera operator, by the (laughs) way. Um, Yeah, and, like, the lines were made out of little black tape. I was really good at lines, weirdly. Um, like to do around a bromided photograph that you'd have to put wax on the back really? and then you'd have to stick little black lines on top. It's really fiddly work. Right? Fiddly. Mm. Yeah, it was great though. So then I thought, oh, I guess I'm a graphic designer. <laughs> um, but I ended up kind of wandering into print communications And I worked for all these trade unions and then I got headhunted to Hmm. go to Sydney to work for an organisation called Social Change Media and I worked there for a long time. You know, I got really, really over bringing, frankly, brilliant ideas to my clients and them, you know, for social movements Mm. and them going, no, no. Well, we want that, except we'd like you to really, really wreck it, please. (laughs) So me and a couple of other people at Social Change Media, actually, um, we thought up some really wonderful Mm. works to do for ourselves as clients. And then we offered them, like we did this um, great poster for the MUA during the Big Wharf dispute in 97. Mm. And... They agreed to print it, hmm. and it was it was an artwork, a giant artwork course, that ended yeah. up all over the city. And then my friend Liz Connor, um, who I had dinner with last night, actually, she and I were watching John Howard on television talking about how he wouldn't subscribe to a black armband view of history, mm. a line brilliantly concocted for him by his pet historian. <laughs> Um, Blaney, was it? Anyway, Liz had an electric light bulb go on over her head and mm. she said, you know, I will. Mm. I will subscribe to a black armband view of history. Yeah, of course. Let's make black armbands. We took the words out of John yep. Howard's mouth and turned them into really nice neoprene black armbands that said um, stick with wick. That mm-hmm. was the legislation that was endangered mm-hmm. at that time. There were three different designs, stick with wick, what were the others? They were about land rights mm. and grief, mm. actually, about the ongoing grief of the ongoing dispossession of Aboriginal and mm. Torres Strait Islander peoples. So we sold them in the end. They threw the body shop and the money went to the Yorta Yorta land claim. That's amazing. And we what, sold. Like what year was that, Deborah? 97, 98. Mm. And you saw people walking around Melbourne. Wearing. wearing their grief. Mm. And it was so amazing. <laughs> that really made me go, this is what I do. Yeah, totally what, what I do. do. Mm. So, yeah. But how do you feel about, I mean, I think art is coming into a new form of power at the moment. Like I do feel like it's reached a level where it's almost surpassed news. Like if you look at social media and you look at sort of even things like fashion or popular culture, Art, I mean, the way I see it, has this 
amazing sort of scope at the moment to almost achieve more than news. And it's not truth. Like I'm not saying that art is truth, but it has a, there's a platform, definitely. How can art actually make some proper change in the next little while? No, I think you have to answer that. (laughs) Um, Because I, I, I'm very sorry to say I totally disagree. Really? I don't know. Uh, you know, 70 million people just voted for Trump. I know. Uh, I know. know. <laughs> <laughs> the visuals aren't, aren't very good there either, are they? No. And, you know, <sighs> ScoMo just got in. I know. Not so long ago. And he's probably going to get back in because, thankfully, he didn't kill us during the coronavirus. Thankfully. Unlike his friends in America and the UK. So I feel like maybe having practised um, activism for quite a long time, I can understand that it gets to a point where it feels like, you know, maybe it's going nowhere and maybe there's there's an age gap between us and, and also I feel like I'm only just becoming more active than I was in the past. And so, you know, how can you, how can you overcome that pessimism or actually, like how can we push through that with your, you know, get you back on board, Deborah? I'm, I mean, I'm totally on board and I, I guess I want to go back and say I don't think I'm an artist and an activist. I think I'm a political artist. Mm. So all my work is political in one way or another. Um, I have to work with my, with my pessimism. Like I can't get past it. It really, it dogs me. I feel like the work I make, like the big work that I make um, is an attempt to save my own life, really. What do you mean by that? I mean, you know what, I started a PhD um, a couple of years ago which was around uh, the work I'm doing now and I, part of the Um, research work I had to do to begin it was I read a whole lot of importantly scientific documents about rates of extinction Mm -hmm. in this country and I just thought I'm not going to live through this PhD. Hmm. I can't know these things and live. I mean, besides the fact that the university is so not set up Mm. for making the kind of artwork that I am keen to make. Mm. Um, you know, my poor supervisors who were brilliant and wonderful people, they were all like, Deborah, how do you think we're going to get that, that through ethics? <laughs> anyway, so my short answer is I'm making works that at least give me a way to survive, really, because... Um, and is that to do with sort of joy? Like yeah, yeah, and gathering, yeah, kind of doing stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learning to cooperate, learning how to make decisions together, yep. making things together, sharing meals and pleasure. Because you know, I, for it's such a serious pessimist, I'm very hedonistic. Mm. So, which I, I know is weird, but all my big artworks contain meals and more and more dancing. And play. Mm. 
And perhaps I think in the face mm. of uh, the sixth great extinction yeah. and the rise of fascism all around the world, mm. that's how I think I can survive. You know, I think that's what artists have that's actually amazing is that you've, there's always an ability to find some kind of joy because that's why we do it. You don't do it for money. You don't do it for power or status. You do it because we have this amazing ability to find joy in little acts like that. And that's a that's an amazing privilege that we have. Truly. <laughs> I mean, I am in a very privileged position too because mm, yeah. people are willing to join me. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's partly because of having a certain megaphone. Of course. And, and you need to, like, there's a responsibility in that too, I feel. Terrifying one. Yeah, but... But a good one, you know, like it's, yeah. it's not, and it's not just something that's fallen in your lap. You've worked for years and years for that megaphone. Mm. You have, because mm. you don't have mm. it at the start. And I think it's really important that we as artists recognise as that's happening, that you, you do have a platform and you do have important things to say. And you're right in thinking the best way to get people to join you is to be, is to, to have fun. Offer off chocolate. <laughs> catch more bees with honey or flies with honey but it is hard I, f- I find myself getting depressed and negative all the time and I'm lucky to live with an eternal optimist that helps me mm, but not everyone me too yeah oh, thank god for that oh right? yeah <laughs> but I think it's this it's a it's a fine line isn't it between having these really dire things that now are more pressing and pressing like it's right on our doorstep like it's not like we have 10 20 years to muck around and have fun anymore yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of getting all those people on board really, really quickly. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that is possible, you know. Maybe. I mean, I'm hoping it is because mm. I'm doing a giant project that really, really requires um, people to. Can you talk about that? I can, yeah. yeah. Um, I've been avoiding talking about it, but it's kind of launching, so it would be awesome. silly not to talk about it. Anyway, so I've been trying to pull off this giant project or start it, um, but in this weird state of there's a pandemic and my dad's dying Mm -hmm. and I'm possessed with the sense I'm never going to see my dad again and then it turns out I never do see him again. Mm. Um, Anyway, so that has been, I guess, an important... um, It has importantly slowed down the process, Mm. Um, but I am attempting to found a queer, insurrectionary, science fiction, climate change religion. Oh, my God. That's the best line I've heard in a long time. You're starting a religion. I am. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say, oh, my God. Oh, my dog. (laughs) Yeah. So what's it called? It's called creation. (laughs) Of course. It really needed all, all this institutional connection because of those big megaphones they have mm-hmm. for um, getting people involved who don't know, mm. you know. Yeah, um, recruiting. Yeah. Mm. So it is just starting. But the very first thing that we did in public for it, okay, the very first thing that the religion has, which is its treasure, is I commissioned the extraordinarily powerful artist S.J. Norman to write the liturgy. S.J. is a great person to get to do that. 
In fact, SJ is the only person, <laughs> I believe, who could have written it. Uh-huh. And I've been following his social media posts for a long time and we kind of know each other, but the social media posts were more and more like, oh, my God, you're practising mm. to write this liturgy. Wow. Because SJ similarly has a somewhat apocalyptic turn of mind. Mm-hmm. So then I commissioned nice. eight poets to respond to the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, so And a composer is attempting to turn those poems into songs. <gasps> Hymns. Well, let's well, not hers. use this. Hers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So good. And I um, collaborated with Angela Goh. I don't know if you know her work. She's a dance artist. Mm -hmm. And we recruited 20 people, maximum people you're allowed to have in a room under COVID rules at that time. Um, So together we devised the Dance Steps, Mm -hmm. which we presented for the Liveworks Festival at Carriageworks. It was really, really wonderful. And, of course, because it's a religion, you can't really have a religion without a banging disco anthem. <laughs> so You're I'm, getting Kylie to do that? Actually, <laughs> Kylie's producers. Really? Yes. I was joking. That's awesome. Yeah, no, Stereogamous have made the banging disco anthem using some of the recording of SJ's liturgy in mm-hmm. SJ's new voice mm-hmm. um, wow. and with a very beautiful vocal track which is by um, this super-duper young artist, Lupa J. And there's a lot of more aspects of it. There's costumes. I'm working with a costume designer and um, I'm making a film, of course. I've been running collage workshops. I was supposed to be running them all around the place but mm-hmm. um, in Melbourne, supported by Arts House. Arts House, but I couldn't come here. Mm. Um, so I went to Candos and worked with the great collage group there called Women with Knives. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and, I, yeah, so I did a few collage workshops, not to the extent that I had planned, but some, and we listened intensively over and over to the liturgy and the characters that mm. we made are going to be animated to the disco anthem using the dance steps that Angela Go and that group devised in the Carriage Works project. Um, and then some of it with the instructions for mm. how to do the dance and karaoke track for how to sing this, some of the songs at least. Mm. And we'll all be shown at the MCA in the National. It's so exciting. And then it's it will epic. go on. Because there's more parts to it. There will be a garden and communal oh, yes. meals. And What about architecture? Oh, and that's one of the things that I haven't um, gone to, but mm. somebody has offered some land. Oh, my God, build a church. Or something. Or some, but I say know, a forest is a cathedral. A forest is a cathedral. That's beautiful. Yeah, maybe you don't need the built environment. Maybe. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe there does need mm. to be some kind of architecture. Um, but obviously there's plenty of other parts of a religion mm. that still need to happen. Mm. Um, and people, I met these young people last night, young climate activists actually, mm. um, and they said, well, how can it be a religion without a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can help like, you out then. Yeah. 
You could, yeah. I would love to. Great. It's really just a community of like-minded people, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm really looking forward to there being some heretics. Mm. So, you know, not all like-minded. Yeah, right. But more complex. So with the religion, with creation, if we were to go to a service, what kind of, you know, what would the preacher or the leader say to us? What kind of thing could you expect? Do you know, I haven't thought about there being services yet, Mm. but more practices. Mm. So I'm imagining, for instance, that part of the practice of creation would be to go to every climate rally. And maybe you would be going in certain colours and you would definitely have some dance steps. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean, it's, it's kind of what, I mean, there's groups like, Extinction Rebellion, that have similar um, tropes, you might say. But this is a different, this is more of a devotion, isn't it? It's like you would to a god. But is there a god in your religion? Well, in there isn't uh, exactly, but there are holy orders. Mm -hmm. So S.J. Norman wrote, um, and there are mysteries as well, which (laughs) is partly to do with maths, Um, so S.J. Norman announces in the liturgy, which I'll send you the link to, um, prays unto the five holy orders and then enunciates the holy orders, which are the vulture, fungus, bacteria, the rat, or the serpent, of course, um, and the spider. I'm just looking at my costume Amazing designs. Amazing drawings. <laughs> oh, I'm um, such a sucker for costume design. It's one of my favourite realms of art history. Female costume design is like every time I find someone in history, a woman, I always you dig a bit deeper and at some point they've designed these freaking amazing costumes and now you really? fall into that category too. Yes, there's well, so many. I was working with um, Matthew Stegg who is Justin Shoulder's partner and an amazing costume designer, but he turned out to be too busy and he said, can you just, like, start designing them or just give me some drawings so I've got something to start with? And I'm like, oh, I'm really not a costume designer at all. Oh, God, I love designing costumes. Anyway, so I actually have been having so much fun. Like it's, it's this sort of, and it takes us back to what we were talking about before, I think, in that it's this sense of like applied art in a way, isn't it? It's like where art and activism comes together because it's, it's, it's using all the elements, music, dance, visual, bodily, all of that, film even. Literature, music. Yeah, it, all of it. You're taking all those elements, so it's art heavy, but then you're applying it to a protest or to, to real life is the next step. It's like that's how we kind of take over the future. That's the plan. But, I mean, the recruiting part, like if you look at, say, Extinction Rebellion, that, I mean, that was incredible how they recruited and how that, but they, they it requires like intense optimism. Well, I feel like maybe what um, creation requires is not so much optimism but um, fighting spirit mm-hmm. and desire for pleasure. And simple desire. 
I like that. So Desire itself as an animating force. So you're you're sort of like harnessing your hedonism in place of optimism. I like that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's all I have. No, that's really cool. I think it's also there's a lot of talk at the moment around, you know, particularly with women, you know, harnessing rage as a something that in the past has been such a shameful thing. And I know I get angry a lot and I know that through doing years and years of counselling that I've learned that it's not a bad thing to get angry but we're taught as women particularly, that it's a bad thing to get angry. Yeah, it's it's not nice. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. No one likes it. Just get in the way. You're a nag, whatever. But I think what's happening now, what I notice seeing a lot more books written about it, just a lot more in the general sort of discussion, is that it's not a bad thing. It's actually, you know, like if, if Greta Thunberg wasn't angry, we wouldn't have that massive movement of children at the moment. Yeah. And that was the coolest thing with the dance, if I may interrupt you. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, With the development of the dance project, um, I'm working with a dance school, Mm. which is Sydney's only dance school that works with both really contemporary dance and children. Awesome. Um, So children are involved in creation right from the beginning. Great. I must say almost every single person I have mentioned to that I'm um, attempting to found a queer insurrectionary science, fiction, climate change, religion, every single person goes, where can I sign up? Mm. Which is, that's exciting. Where can they sign up, Deborah? Um, well, there will be a website and it will be called resplendentmasses.com. Oh, .com. Uh, resplendent Masses is a line, a phrase from the liturgy. Oh, I can't wait to, I feel like there's so much, there's like a whole other podcast we could do about this. But um, I feel like right now we probably should wind it up a little bit because I've got a lot to think about and digest and I'm sure anyone listening to this also has a lot to digest. But um, it has been so just, you know, uh, mind-opening and really a massive privilege to speak to you today and I'm, yeah, really thankful that you could make it here. So thank you. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me in this beautiful doll's house. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you at the exhibition, hopefully, maybe if you can come down for it. Um, yeah. What exhibition? <laughs> wow, wasn't that amazing? Talk about a force of nature. Deborah really inspired me by how she's dedicated her life and her practice to being political. And as she said herself, by using her skills and creativity to envisage other ways and other worlds. I love the way Deborah speaks about making art as an attempt to save her own life, and that the only way she can think to survive the sixth great extinction is by finding joy in what we do as artists. Oh, and by starting a new religion, praise be. This special edition series of A World of One's Own was commissioned by the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery as part of their 50th year celebrations. Audio production by Camilla Hannon and music by Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, from her album The Ocean of Everything. All five new episodes can be found on the MPRG website and your favourite podcast player. The exhibition will run from the 4th of March 2021 until the end of April. 
To hear more episodes of A World of One's Own, visit tysnaith.com.